The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes uh, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. And we do have, uh, again, want to remind you that we do have a one-time only introductory offer to each of these letters. You can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, to obtain that one-time low-priced introductory subscription. Or you can go to our website at miningstocks.com. That's mining, M-I-N-I-N-G, S-T-O-C-K-S.com. Well, Chen in particular has had a phenomenal track record, and I'm really blessed to have Chen with me. He's going to be talking to us and giving you some of his ideas about the new year, uh, about the markets right now as we wind up this year. Uh, he's been able to take $5,400 in his wife's IRA back in 2000, January of 2003, turn it into over $1.3 million uh, at, at, at the end of this, uh, well, at, at the end of the last month, actually. And uh, Chen has actually done better than that on some of his own accounts where he's leveraged up. We're going to talk to Chen a little bit later, as I mentioned, about his views on the market and also about leveraging and uh, what he's doing at this point in time. I, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. You are making this the number one show on the Voice America business channel. And of course, we want to thank our corporate sponsors who make this economically viable. They are, for the first hour of this show, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, North Atlantic Resources, American Bonanza, Palangel Exploration, Millrock Resources, Revolution Resources, and Uranium Energy. Today, our main guest is Lieutenant General William Boykin. Uh, he will explain how, in his view, the U.S. is rapidly marching into a Marxist state. Uh, and if we continue to proceed in that direction uh, that uh, General Boykin believes we're heading into, uh, then I dare say there won't be much of a middle class left. There will be mostly only sort of poor people left in America. At least that's the way I see it, because socialism really 
encourages consumption, discourages work, and it penalizes those who work hard and make a lot of money. At least that's my editorializing for today. Uh, I'll leave it to others to decide. So how do we live frugally, though, in a world where the real living standards are in decline? I think most Americans would agree, most middle-class people would agree that their living standards are in decline. Well, we're going to be talking to Daniel to Danny Kofke. He's written an excellent little booklet uh, titled How to Survive on a Teacher's Salary, uh, and he says, and perhaps thrive. So maybe there are some ways that uh, we can avoid the, the wasteful means of living that Americans have become so accustomed to. We're going to talk to Danny Kofke to see if he has some ideas that can be passed along, not only for teachers, but for people in general. And as I mentioned, just in a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to my partner, Chen Lin. Uh, after Chen, we're going to have Mike Hoffman. He is the president uh, of a new and growing gold producer in Australia and a sponsor to this show, Crocodile Gold. Uh, and uh, Mike is going to tell us about that company's progress and how they're moving towards the 100,000 ounce per year mark uh, in gold production in Australia and how he expects to move beyond that. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be talking to Danny Kofke uh, as well. Uh, well, after Danny, actually. Uh, in the second hour of the show, we're going to have Chris Krupe. Of, uh, he's the president of Paramount Gold and Silver. That's a really interesting company that has uh, stock prices recently shot up like a rocket. We're going to ask him why and what's going on there. It's a company I'm also very interested in because they have acquired the Sleeper Mine in northwestern Nevada. And that's a mine that I was involved in as a banker, actually, involved in uh, in the, mo the first uh, gold loan in modern days when it was uh, a 250,000-ounce gold loan that uh, Westpac Banking Corp., who I was working for with at the time, was a, uh, uh, a participant in that syndication headed up by Citicorp that lent 250,000 ounces to AMAX at that time to move that project forward. Well, anyway, uh, it's going to be, I think, a really good show. We're going to end up then at the end of today with Roger Wiegand, my partner, and Roger says he has some very important things to say about the markets as well. But now I want to turn to my friend and partner, Chen Lin. Welcome, Chen. Thanks, Jay. Well, we, you know, you're having another very great year this year, and congratulations on that. You uh, uh, have, have had a stellar track record going back a number of years before I knew you, and since I've known you over the last couple of years, just remarkable. I always enjoy talking with you because you have ideas that are not generally out there. You can't, you can't just get them anywhere. Uh, they are your own ideas, and that's why I think you're so successful and so valuable. You are a good thinker. Um, you, you have taken your, as I mentioned earlier, and as I've talked about frequently, Emily's account, your wife's account, the IRA account from 5400 to over $1.3 million. But actually, you have uh, that's your conservative account. If folks can believe turning that kind of, uh, of an investment into $1.3 million is conservative, then I don't know. What, uh, but basically, you're saying that you have taken a more aggressive stance in some of your own accounts. You've used leverage to do even better than that. But recently, you reduced your leverage, uh, except for one stock. As I understand, you you did uh, over in the, in the recent past again. Um, take out some, you'll borrow some money to leverage up on a particular stock. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes, um, I, I, I took a pretty big position in Stillwater uh, last week. Uh, so basically what happened was uh, it's 50% owner, the Russian uh, company, wanted to sell, sell their stock out. So um, it seems to me, obviously, uh, Wall Street bankers who want to buy the share on the cheap uh, try to manipulate the stock to push the stock lower so they can get a bargain price. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so the stock actually died, you know, when 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 they when they announced. Actually, the day before it announced, it, it already started to die. So you can see this, uh, the news was leaked. Uh, so I, I look at this, you know, uh, the, the the purchase, the block trade price was 19.5. So I bought at 19.5 and all the way down to 19 dollars. I, I bought as much as I could. So actually, I re-leverage again and also bought the core options on that. Mm. Uh, it turned out to be quite successful. Only like three trading, three or four trading day later, today is trading at uh, 21 and a half, and it's up more than 10 percent. And the core mm. options actually up 40 and 50 percent. So uh, wow! So, yeah. so congratulations, okay. congratulations on that, Chen. Could you give our listeners just a sense of how Wall Street might manipulate the market? What, what would they do? Sell short? Would some people take some big short positions? Drive the price lower? Uh, scare people out of the stock and then be able to come in and buy it up cheaper again? Is that what they're doing, you think? Yeah, I mean, even though I cannot substance, you know, I, I have no evidence for that. But I, in my general feeling is uh, they're they trying to game the market. Uh, for example, this is a pretty well-known case because someone, the 50% shareholder, you know, trying to sell you know, uh, 10, 50 million shares. And, and then the Wall Street can dump like a, a million, two million shares hit very hard. Hit people start stop order, so make people to sell it. You know, like snowball to 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 roll. The stock can go down like a ten, twenty percent in very short period. Then they close the deal, right? They close the deal at nineteen and a half, or almost the the lowest point in the past few weeks, lowest price. I mean, so they got themselves a rock bottom price, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. they use the the money to. Uh, to cover their short position. That's what I'm feeling, okay? But for an investor, you know, I was looking at Stillwater for a pretty long time. I want yeah. to invest in that. And then, uh, but I heard the Russian are selling, so I wasn't, you know, kind of hesitate. I just waiting for, for this to happen. Wait for, mm-hmm. make sure, you know, the, the selling is behind me before I take position. And that, that actually created a, a very good opportunity for me to take advantage of the, this situation. Okay, so you can see how uh, maybe you've gotten a 10% gain if you bought the shares, but a 40 to 50% gain if you bought the call options. So that's the kind of leverage you've uh, been able to take advantage of not once, but quite frequently. And it doesn't always work out in your, in your favor, but it does very often, Chen. That's, that's, uh, congratulations on another great trade. Let me just ask you, though, as we end this year, we're you know, looking at a couple of more weeks yet before 2010 is over. I'm, you know, I'm wondering what your view is on the market going forward. Now, congratulations once again to you on your call this year. I was more of a deflationist. I believe that we could see markets contracting. Actually, the inflation trade is back on. Let's say the risk trade is back on. We're seeing prices, and uh, I would say commodity prices and stock prices rising very dramatically, even though we don't see much evidence of a growing economy too much in the U.S. Well, what do you think, uh, what do you, what's your gut? feeling telling you about next year. Are we going to see more of the same, you think, as we get into 2011, as we start the new year? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, potentially, I see uh, commodity can rise even higher uh, in 2011. Uh, the, the, one of the key is, um, you know, uh, like Obama, they're going to pass this uh, tax, tax cut bill. You know, even the billionaire was talking on CNBC, they said they really don't need this tax cut, right? They just still cut for everybody. Extended for two years, that's $1 trillion. It's mm-hmm. basically equivalent to $1 trillion of, of stimulus. 
So, 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 so the bottom line is, um, it, it's just a sugar shot for the for the economy. I don't mm-hmm. know what what real impact on that we have to see in the future, but that's really make United States um, the the balance sheet, the debt situation much much worse. I heard S and P going to downgrade uh, United States uh, government bond as soon as the tax bill is signed to law. So, uh, so I mean, there's a lot of consequence. I mean, if you look at it from many angles, this could, you know, basically U.S. the rating could be low Ireland, for example, easily, you know, because it just, uh, it's unsustainable. And then, well, do you think they would do that, though, Chen? They would lower us below Ireland? I mean, what would that do then for the confidence in the dollar and, and the gold prices and, and, say, commodity prices in general? It would be very bullish, I would think. Right. I, I, I don't think they will put it below Ireland, uh, but I think in the investor's mind, you know, if you do some logical thinking, you, you just look at the situation and say, you know, this is worse than Ireland, it's, you know, or worse than other things, Portugal, worse than Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are still continue to do that, right? So they okay. just going to balloon the budget uh, budget deficit, and then they they leave to the next president to solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Kick the can down the road, Jen. Uh, there was so much more I wanted to talk to you about. I think we do have to take a break here. But just, do you think? Um, uh, so you think you think China is still inflating? We're still in, we have a global inflation. That's your bet, at least as we end up this year and head into next, right? Right, yes. Uh, China didn't raise interest rate this weekend. I think Chinese government realized that to raise interest rate, there's no use because uh, just invite a lot of hot money coming in, and then they do it, United States doing QE2, QE3. So China going to, is, is having a serious inflation problem. So, there's, so basically I see a commodity bubble uh, forming. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we are just at the early stage, but they were forming in next year, maybe the year after. And then we may have uh, some tough time ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, Chen, congratulations on another really good year. You know, you've been able to play this expansion. As you say, take advantage of it. You're in agreement with me that we've got big problems. We're going to have a contraction sooner or later. But basically, you're saying, let's take advantage and make money as long as we can before this happens. So we'll be looking to you to help us get out of this bubble in time before it collapses. Thank you, Chen. Uh, don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with Mike Hoffman. He's the president and CEO of Crocodile Gold, an exciting new gold producer coming for, to us from Australia. We'll be right back with Mike Hoffman. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Mike Hoffman. He's the president and CEO of Crocodile Gold. Crocodile Gold is a sponsor of this show, and I should also mention that I own it personally, and it is also a recommendation in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold energy and tech stocks. Uh, ter- uh, Crocodile Gold trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol CRK. You can buy it in the U.S. markets under the symbol CROCF. Uh, earlier today, I noticed it was trading at about a dollar and a half, a dollar sixty, somewhere in that range. 228.3 million shares outstanding. I believe that's uh, more or less where they're at right now, giving it a market cap of about $360 million. Well, Mike, welcome again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks for having me again, Jay. Really good to have you, and uh, you're on the North American continent today, are you? Yeah, uh, sitting in Toronto, watching the snow fly down, and talking <laughs> to the guys in Australia, and they're getting deluged by monsoonal rain. So, <laughs> well, I was going to say maybe. Well, I don't know which you. I was going to say maybe you want to go to to Australia and, and enjoy a heat wave after that uh, cold and, and snow in Toronto. But I don't think monsoons or anything to look forward to either. No. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, anyway, it's nice inside your office. I'm sure it's nice and warm. Uh, for the sake of those many new people that uh, 
are that listen to our show every week, and we have growing numbers, Mike. So I'm sure there's some new people listening that haven't have not heard your story before. Talk to us a little bit about your projects, your your different different mines in uh, in northern Australia, and you know how much gold have you discovered so far? How much do you expect to produce this year? At what cost, and so forth. Yeah, um, we uh, bought these assets out of receivership in early 2009. Um, it came with a little over 4 million ounces of resources and a couple processing plants, very good infrastructure. Uh, we're right, right along the main highway, power line, rail line, and gas line. Um, so, so as far as location, very good. Um, we started up the mill uh, last uh, December last year, and so we've been steadily ramping up through the year. Uh, we went into commercial production in June of this year, and our target this year is 85,000 ounces of gold. Um, our third quarter results, we actually produced uh, just around 25,000 ounces of gold, and we actually had earnings of uh, just uh, around $2 million, um, which was pretty good for the first uh, quarter of commercial production. Mm-hmm. Our cash cost, however, were um, in the probably about the nine, U.S. 940 range, but I would emphasize that we did actually make a profit. Um, Mm -hmm. One discussion you get into when you look at gold companies is people will concentrate on cash costs, but I think it's important to concentrate on earnings. Um, One of the issues with us right at the present time is we're not able to capitalize the mining of waste in the open pits because they're very shallow open pits. So we tend to expense them. So therefore, it's a higher cash cost, but um, we're not actually carrying a lot of extra capital. So we've been... Mm -hmm. Up until the end of the third quarter, we actually were financing um, our capital program out of cash flow. So, well, that's good. That's really good. Now, um, you you did raise some capital though recently. I think twenty eight million dollars, uh, twenty million twenty million shares. I, I guess the share number that I read off takes that into consideration. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It it does okay. include the recent financing. Um, the big reason we uh, did that financing, partly for just having some working capital as a cushion. But more importantly, we're in the midst of uh, uh, developing the crown jewel of our our asset portfolio, which is the Cosmo Underground Mine. And just on its own, we think that that'll produce close to 100,000 ounces a year at cash cost of 450 to 500 U.S. Mm. And uh, that we've been developing it since May, and uh, that'll be in full production mid next year, which really makes a big difference to both the production profile and cash cost. And uh, we wanted to, we have to dewater an old open pit, and then we have to, the uh, development that we're doing underground is really starting to accelerate. So, therefore, it's costing a little more money, and that's part of the reason we raised that, those funds. Well, so, uh, going forward, you, is it your goal then to be able to finance your, your continued growth with uh, cash flow from operations? That, that's the idea. It's uh, obviously, you know, shareholders are always concerned about further dilution. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'll never say that we'll never uh, go to the markets again. I guess it depends on the opportunities and the and the stock price. But uh, the intent is to try to finance as much as possible out of cash flow. I think at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it makes for a, a better looking company. You keep that share count down, and obviously, uh, you know, if, you know the investors want to see that reward too in in earnings and and cash flow multiples and that kind of thing. So. All right, Mike. So uh, going forward now, you talked about producing 85,000 ounces this year. Your cash costs haven't been around 940. They'll probably come down uh, on your current existing operations. But if we go forward into next year, then what do you expect? Uh, how, mon- how much do you expect to produce next year? And what would be sort of a, a guidance cash 
flow uh, cash cost. Yeah, what we show in our investor presentation, we have a range of about 125 to 150,000 ounces. Um, we are in the midst of completing our budgeting process. I would I would say that we're probably going to be on the low end of that 125. However, the cash cost will decrease to about 750 US. And the mm-hmm. real key there is is Cosmo comes on stream, and it really makes a big contribution. Uh, we'll you know, obviously we'll be in full production for the second half of the year, and that's where the average cash cost really drop. But in the first half of the year, it, it's going to be a little more of the same in the first quarter, and then we'll see more and more Cosmo uh, or coming to the mill in the second quarter, and the cash cost will really start to to drop fairly steadily. Mm. St- uh, you think ultimately drop below seven hundred fifty <laughs> for the company as a whole. Um, in the in 2012, when we get a full year of Cosmo, we're mm-hmm. right now we're looking at about 650 US as far mm-hmm. as cash cost. Well, at 650 at one time wouldn't have sounded that outstanding, but when you're looking at a $1,400 gold price, it really does uh, give you quite a margin. Now we're very fortunate, folks. Chen Lin is, has uh, stayed with us here because uh, he has followed uh, Crocodile. And, and Chen, do you have a question for Mike? Yes. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kitchen. Yeah, one one question from a lot of investor was, uh, you know, the the prior owner uh, uh, run the mine but failed. Uh, what heard uh, people heard was um, uh, the the great control had some issues. So basically, it's very hard to distinguish the ore versus waste uh, from the mine. So that's the the prior owner has a lot of dilution, have a great issue. So that create the the failure as well as the low gold price. So uh, what uh, this round, you know, you are doing? What what do you do? Can to do a better job in the great control versus prior owner? Well, that's a great question, Chen. Um, when we're mining underground right now at Brox, um, you actually have a very good visual contact. But we also have geologists who go down and actually sample the ore as we go, and so they make sure that uh, not only have we diamond drilled it, but they actually take uh, samples of the face. And that helps to define what you're going to drill and blast. And then when we get into the open pit, it, it's a different uh, animal. Uh, obviously, we've drilled it from surface. but And from a visual point of view, you do have a very good idea of what the ore looks like. However, you know, at the end of the day, it's an open pit. You're moving a lot of tons. So what we do is we actually do some grade control drilling, which is using reverse circulation drilling but shorter holes. <clears throat> and then we we actually take the original ore body model, input these grade control holes, and then we actually figure out what's ore and what's waste. And we actually mark that up in the pit. And you'll see these great big uh, red lines and blue lines and green lines, which delineate the various grades of ore. And then we actually have a ore spotter watching the shovel operator, making sure that he's just uh, um, mucking the ore up and making sure which pile it goes to, because we have a high-grade pile, medium-grade pile and a low-grade pile and obviously a waste pile. So we spend a lot of time and effort in that. Um, I would say that compared to the previous operators, we have a lot more technical assistance. Uh, We have a lot more geologists on staff. Um, Obviously, it it is a challenge. It's a challenge for everybody. But, uh, you know, I think we have some pretty good procedures. What we're looking at now is even using the blast hole holes in the open pit as a guide for grade control too. And we're finding that maybe we don't have to do that uh, that grade control drilling, we could just use the blast hole drilling. But it's uh, very important. You don't want to make too many changes at any one time. Uh, one of the things the previous operators that came to our attention is they actually mined a low-grade stockpile. They thought graded around a gram a ton. And it turned out it was actually 0.3 grams a ton. And they actually milled that for almost a year. 
So there's one good reason why they didn't get much grade. Well, so it's very interesting. It gives you a real uh, a lot of upside there. I would I would guess if you can efficiently uh, grade control. I mean, it's really obviously very important in some mining projects. It's easy to be able to determine what ore is and what it isn't, and it's I guess uh, that's one of the challenges. Every project has its own challenges. Well, I'd like to ask you, Mike, about the uranium play. You guys ha- have a joint venture operation uh, with a company that has a, a uranium deposit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we have a joint venture with a company called uh, Sandalara, and Sandalara has a 70% interest in the uranium on the bulk of our property, where we have a 30% carried interest. So the advantage for us is they actually explore for uranium, and when they're assaying their their uh, drill hole results, they actually have to assay for gold and base metals, which is 100% of ours. So um, recently, they did get some very good uranium results um, south of our Princess Louise North Point deposits. But more importantly, they actually hit some gold, and they hit about, I think it was 10 meters of 5 grams. And when we actually plotted where that hole was, it's right on the same trend of our North Point Princess Louise. So what where we thought that you know North Point Princess Louise, each of them was around a kilometer long, now it's starting to look like that whole trend could be as long as 8 kilometers. Obviously, we have to wow. do a lot more drilling, but... Very, very encouraging. Mike, does that stay at a 30, 70, 30 to you, 70 to your partner uh, for gold as well as uranium then? No, no. We have 100% of the gold and the base oh, metal okay. and then oh. only 30% of the uranium. But wow, really it's exciting. a way of you know, sort of leveraging exploration, having somebody else, somebody else's mm-hmm. expertise looking at your property, mm-hmm. and then you know, keeping the land package in good standing too. So. Well, that's exciting. So that's impossible. Partner. Some possible blue sky for investors to to look forward to going going into the future. Uh, Mike, is there anything else you think uh, that our listeners need to know about for sure about uh, right now about Crocodile? I think the big thing, uh, you know, uh, we're looking forward to the new year, and for us, uh, you know, the most important thing I think is getting Cosmo up and going. So uh, what I'd be looking for is, you know, as an investor is when we first get into the ore at Cosmo, uh, hopefully some more drill results from Cosmo and, and looking forward to seeing us uh, go into full production mid-year. So once you see that, you're going to see steadily mounting uh, uh, monthly production and also uh, you'll see the cash cost drop quite a bit. So really that's the future of the company and I think that's where the value will come. Well, thank you very much, Mike. It is an exciting story. As I've told my uh, listeners here, it is a recommendation of mine in my newsletter. It's a stock I own personally. And uh, thank you again, Mike, for being a sponsor of this show. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after commercial break with Lieutenant General William Boykin. He's going to have some very sobering things to tell us, to tell all of us about America and the direction our country is heading. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Lieutenant General William Boykin. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. 
As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, our main guest today is retired Lieutenant General Richard Boykin. Lieutenant General Boykin uh, was the U.S. Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. He graduated from uh, Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, uh, that's Virginia Tech, with a bachelor's degree in English in 1971, and he joined the Delta Force at the age of 29. In his 36 years uh, in the Army, he played a role in almost every recent major military operation, serving in Grenada, Somalia, and Iraq. He also served at the Pentagon as Chief Special Operations Division and later at the Central Intelligence Agency as Deputy Director of Special Activities. Lieutenant Boykin retired on August 1st, 2007, and is currently a professor at uh, Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. He is the author of Never Surrender, A Soldier's Journey to the Crosswords of Faith and Freedom, and Danger Close. You can find out more about him uh, by going to his website at kingdomwarriors.com. That's kingdomwarriors.com. Welcome, General Boykin, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you, Jay. I'm uh, delighted to be with you. It's really a pleasure to have you. Uh, I was introduced uh, through a video that I saw on the Internet uh, that, had, that really warned us about uh, the steps we're taking towards, uh, towards Marxism. You know, I thought we fought a, a Cold War to, uh, to, to overcome or destroy Marxism, and, 
And so it's a, a bit dismaying to hear uh, people like yourself warning that, in fact, maybe we weren't the victors of, uh, of the Cold War after all. Well, I think uh, we were clearly the victors of the Cold War, but uh, the, the problem is that uh, this has uh, been going on for quite some time. It's an incremental uh, sort of movement towards Marxism. Uh, it is uh, shared by both parties. And, uh, Jay, the, the country swings way to the left periodically. Mm -hmm. And even though it always swings back to the right, it never goes all the way back which mm -hmm. is why you get legislation like, uh, you know, abortion rights and gay marriage and so forth that is never repealed. So you never get all the way back to where you were. And the same thing applies, you know, as we move towards Marxism in the country. All of these steps are incremental, and both parties have contributed to them. Mm -hmm. So the incrementalism is, has allowed us to to sort of be complacent, would you say? You know, I'm reminded of an illustration I've heard where they, I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it seems logical enough. If you if you put a frog in a, in a kettle of water on the stove and you turn the water, the heat up slowly, the, the frog will just sit there until he's cooked to death. But if you if you put a frog in a boiling pot of water, he'll immediately jump out. Do you think Americans have been incrementally, are we being incrementally cooked to death? Well, absolutely. And if you if you go back and uh, you and I spoke before we came on the program mm -hmm. about the uh, seven men that that really created the uh, national, I mean, the Federal Reserve in 1910. Well, I think the law was passed in 1913, but they, they created it in 1910 and then got legislation. I think that was the beginning of this uh, movement towards Marxism, and it was then supported, you know, by uh, Woodrow Wilson and then ultimately Franklin Roosevelt um, contributed greatly to that, and it is the sort of... The, the pot of uh, boiling water with the frog in it. I, you know, we just keep moving in that direction and we never move back. Mm -hmm. So it's a leftward move back to the center, a further left move back to the, to the new center, always moving to the left, always towards collectivism, I guess. Well, that's exactly right. And now we're on a probably an accelerated pathway to this. And and as I said in that video, which, you know, was only, I think, about a six-minute video, and I made mm -hmm. it uh, there at the Oak Initiative um, and had no idea that it would get such, uh, you know, so much uh, attention. But, uh, yes, we are on an accelerated uh, path right now to this because of some of the things that uh, the current administration is doing that are uh, so in line with the historic model of Marxism, which, uh, you know, that model is a more radical model than what the U.S. has seen, but now we've actually, uh, in my view, we're adopting the uh, radical model mm -hmm. and moving very quickly. Uh, I want to get into those points that you mentioned on that video, and I'd like to tell our listeners uh, to go to kingdomwarriors.net. I'm assuming, uh, Lieutenant General, that uh, people can see that particular video as well as a lot of other ones uh, at kingdomwarriors.net. Yeah, they can just uh, type in uh, William Boykin on YouTube, or they can go to mm -hmm. my website at kingdomwarriors.net, mm -hmm. uh, or they can go to the Oak Initiative, and, and, and that's probably the best source because I have that as well as uh, some videos there on a couple of other issues, one of which is uh, radical Islam. Uh, would uh, wh Okay, so I'd like to uh, – There's uh, you've written a couple of other books, and I want to ask you about that. Uh, in time here, if we have the time. 
But moving on to, you mentioned 1910, and I think before we went on the air, you mentioned the creature from Jekyll Island, or the book, uh, or what took place on Jekyll Island, is when uh, several uh, very large, as I understand it, very large banking families or international interests, not necessarily U.S. interests, got together and tried to do, to, um, uh, to, to force or to uh, program or to find a way to get a central bank into the United States. Going back into our history, of course, Thomas Jefferson was very much against a central bank. I think Andrew Jackson was. Uh, we, had a, we had a history of being against a, a central bank, and this was not even a U.S. Uh, government bank really it's not a it's not a federal bank it's a bank that is owned the shareholders own it uh, they are outside of the government essentially but uh, we had Ed Griffin the author of the book Creature from Jekyll Island on this show are you familiar with that work oh I, I have the book I just recently read it which reinforced all of my greatest fears and uh, I think you're absolutely right what these people did was they created a cartel and and uh, mm -hmm. he says so in the book they created a mm -hmm. cartel so that they could uh, control and manipulate the U.S. financial system and ultimately the economy. And he gives some uh, fairly good evidence that, uh, if you go back historically, that's exactly what they have done, particularly uh, when our markets have uh, crashed or mm -hmm. you know, we've had uh, recessions or even the Great Depression. He uh, lays it all back to this bunch, which, mm -hmm. by the way, they have many um, protégés that are still running around, uh, many of which are in our government today, uh, trying to establish this elite class that would control everything. Uh, yes, indeed, and these would be uh, the people that are, are mentioned in, in Mr. Griffin's book would be prominent uh, global families, uh, you know, certainly people uh, that, that were associated with um, uh, with with the Rothschilds, with the Warburgs, and some of those organizations, and you could actually see their ownership in the banking structure in the United States. But you know, uh, Lieutenant General, a lot of people will say yes, but isn't this capitalism? This is capitalism. This isn't socialism. These guys are are using you know are are real capitalists. So how can you say that this is a socialist movement if these people are behind this this uh, uh, this move to set up the Federal Reserve and then socialize? the risks and privatize the profits as we've seen happen here recently with the bank bailouts. Yeah, well remember even in a socialist society or Marxist society you have an elite ruling class that uh, really has control of all of the uh, resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean that's George Soros. That's ultimately I think George Soros's objective mm -hmm. is uh, George and some of his cronies would ultimately uh, control our economy and they would have the resources. So I don't think this is inconsistent mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the Marxist model because that's what you have in every society where there is and, Marxism. And actually, if you turn to Marxism or fascism or whatever sort of totalitarian government, you'll find that there's always a ruling class that has special privileges, I guess, and, and you know, at, at the expense of the masses. Well, that's exactly right, and, and we see that developing now. And, yeah, the Rothschilds and the Warburgs and... Uh, and the Rockefeller family, um, mm -hmm. and they were all a part of this. And I think he makes a great uh, point in his book that they were all acknowledged uh, hardcore socialists. And we had last week on my show an author named John Luftus, who's written a book called America's Nazi Secret. And he talked about how a lot of these same families were actually channeling money to Hitler during the Second War, 
during the Second World War. At the same time, they were, you know, they were playing both sides of it. And then after the war, were able to get their money laundered back to them. And, and these would be some of the same families. It's this amazing evidence and, and very well footnoted document, just as I think Ed Griffin's book was. Uh, and um, well, let's let's go on to some of the subjects that you mentioned in your in your video. And again, I, I would really uh, like to uh, encourage our listeners to to check out this video, and not only this one, but some other things. And I want to move on beyond this if we have the time, Lieutenant General, uh, to discuss some of your other views too. But let, let's go to the Marxist model. You mentioned there are several things that you can see happening, and you and let's before we get into that, let's just mention that that you were a student of this uh, through your career, through your military career. You were a right. student, uh, uh, and you have. I mean, it's not like it's something you just recently took up. It's something you've been watching over over several decades. The the evolution towards Marxism in various societies. Talk to us a little bit about your history, about what you've done in the past, and your, your military history and so forth, and how that sort of fits in. Yeah, I'm a Special Forces officer, and uh, one of the uh, fundamentals of Special Forces is studying and understanding insurgency, either because you want to create an insurgency to bring down an illegitimate government, or you want to prop up a legitimate government to stop an insurgency, and those are always Marxist insurgencies. So... We've had to study the history of insurgency, and I even ran the school when I was a two-star general uh, that taught this, uh, so it was my responsibility to impart this kind of thing to uh, lots of young Green Berets that were going out to try and make a difference in the world, and uh, so I, I'm very familiar with it. Okay, so let's let's get into some of the points. You mentioned here um, nationalism. Uh, and, and you're suggesting, as I understand it, like I said, it was one, two, three, four, five, I believe six points that you mentioned in your video. So I'd like to discuss each of those points if we could here. But uh, starting with the first one, nationalism of major sectors of the economy. Talk to us about that. What evidence do you see of that happening in the U.S.? Well, I think the bailouts were a clear uh, example of that. And uh, particularly when you look at the fact that uh, some of the banks have tried to pay the money back, and Geithner has not allowed them to do so. Uh, mm. Ask the question, why? And again, mm. I think it's because you have to control major sectors of the economy, and banking, auto industry, and insurance company, as well as health care, mm -hmm. are all major sectors of our economy. Mm -hmm. So we've so we've nationalized the banking industry to a great extent, at least at this point in time. And certainly the big money center banks. Well, that's right. And and if you look at the fact that uh, right after we bailed out the auto industry, uh, the president fired one of the CEOs. I mean, when in history, when in the history of this country have you ever mm -hmm. seen uh, the federal government uh, take a step like that? What constitutional right does the federal government have to do that? They don't, and that's the whole point. Uh, they don't have a right to determine what kind of bonuses these people will get. As far as I'm concerned, if they get no bonus, it's okay, but I don't want the federal government making that decision because that's part of government control over major sectors of the economy. Well, let me ask you, we're supposed to have three, uh, three equal stools of government that are supposed to hold each other in check. Where is the judiciary at a point at a time like this? Uh, it, this seems so obvious to me. Where is the judiciary uh, in in terms of, of regulating or in terms of uh, ruling on these sort of unconstitutional moves? Well, let's go back. You said mm -hmm. earlier uh, you, you gave the uh, analogy of the f a frog in the boiling water. Right. 
And what has happened incrementally over time is that people have developed this dependence upon the central government. They have developed an attitude of entitlements. And I don't think that uh, anybody, uh, because we have so many unions in this country and so many people that are tied to the unions, and I don't think anybody raised this thing to a significant level to have it challenged in the Supreme Court. Now, several states are doing that with health care, but no, nobody really challenged it uh, and got it into the Supreme Court so that uh, the judiciary branch could uh, review this. Right. I believe we did have a ruling just yesterday or the day before, though, uh, saying that the at least aspects of the health care program were unconstitutional. I think forcing people to take insurance, perhaps. There was a court maybe in Virginia or in the South somewhere. Uh, are you aware yeah, yeah. of that? It's in okay, my so, state, in Virginia. That it, it, okay. The judge ruled in favor of uh, the state of Virginia. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. It will, it will go to the Supreme Court, I'm sure. Don't you, don't you think it will? Well, I don't think there's any question that this one will go to the Supreme Court. Now, I think there's going to be several more. You know, there are several states that have filed suit, and I think there will be several cases, and they will be consolidated and taken to the Supreme Court. So I don't think the court will review them individually, but I think it's going to be in the Supreme Court before this is all over with. And it could be a, a little while. I guess the, the legislation isn't supposed to go into effect for a little while yet anyway, for a couple of years down the road. But nonetheless, this is this is really basic, very, very important stuff. How do you think... What's your best guess as to how it comes out? Well, you know, I sincerely hope and pray that it uh, that they determine that this is not constitutional. I don't mm -hmm. know how it could be. Mm -hmm. And the weak arguments about insurance on autos and those types of things, which are purely voluntary, by the way, uh, is not a good argument. So they're going to have to come up with something more creative than that. But I just don't uh, personally see how the Supreme Court can rule that the federal government has this authority. Now, if we don't change the balance in the court right now and we maintain a four and four with, you know, one guy in the middle, uh, I think it's a toss up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly seems to be a very major issue, but let's, let's go on to some of the other points here. Redistribution of wealth. And you mentioned healthcare as a means of doing that. How so? Well, every Marxist uh, insurgency has, uh, had a redistribution of wealth, and they call it land reform down in South America most of the time. Mm -hmm, you take mm -hmm. from the wealthy, you give to the poor, and uh, you destroy the middle class is, is the bottom line. Now, having said that, even the guy that uh, our president placed in charge of Medicare and Medicaid has stood up and said health care legislation was nothing but redistribution of wealth. And I don't think anybody has missed the statements by the current president on uh, his focus on redistribution of wealth. Mm -hmm. What else is that? I mean, is that capitalism? Is that free market uh, society? No, that's not. That's that. That's a redistribution of wealth. That's Marxism. Um, it it would certainly seem so. Uh, okay, another another point that you make that is that you're always seeing in this Marxist uh, movement is discredit discrediting the opposition. Explain how that's going on now in America. Yeah, it, uh, in multiple ways. One, one of which is uh, the attack on the military through the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's an attack on the military. That's to marginalize the military. That's to discredit it in the eyes of, uh, really, in the eyes of the American public. But having mm -hmm. said that, when Janet Napolitano sent her memorandum around to law enforcement all over America about, uh, about a year and a half ago, 
saying that the future threats to America were right-wing Christian groups, pro-life groups, Second Amendment groups, and returning veterans, but never said Islamic terrorist. Uh, you asked the question, what was she doing? And what she was doing was discrediting the groups. And by the way, he, she hit me in all four categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was highly insulted, and I'm still angry about it. But uh, mm-hmm. what she was doing was discrediting those very groups that would stand up and protest what they see happening in America. And in fact, if you look at the Tea Parties, if you look at some of the other grassroots movements, most of those people uh, are in at least three of those categories, and uh, uh, and I'm one of them. So mm-hmm. they were discrediting the kinds of groups and the kinds of people that would protest what is going on here, and that's just part of the Marxist model. Well, then, uh, to discredit people, uh, obviously, if a, if a high-ranking person in the government says something, that, that carries some weight in the minds of a lot of people. It doesn't necessarily carry weight in my mind, but it, in the masses of people, it does. But then you hear it on the, in the mainstream media, do you not? You hear that sort of, um, I, I suppose, that view uh, applauded by the mainstream media for the most part. Would you say that that was the case? Well, I think the mainstream media has swung so far to the left and is so... Uh, on board with this Marxist model, and they're part of the problem. They, uh, you know, I think they have essentially ceded, you know, their moral authority, uh, and uh, are now just uh, working with those who want to move us towards, uh, you know, Marxism. Censorship uh, is another point, uh, another um, characterization of Marxism. Talk to us about censorship in the U.S. Yeah, the uh, Chuck Schumer keeps pushing, the senator from New York keeps pushing uh, the Fairness Doctrine, which is really about shutting you down. Uh, now, it hasn't gotten any legs yet, but uh, it keeps coming up. But the other thing is hate crimes legislation. And if you look at what's happened in Europe under the European Union's uh, hate crimes legislation, the people that are being targeted are pastors. And uh, it's happening in Canada. And I was doing a presentation in Atlanta, and uh, two Canadians stood up and said, listen to what he's saying, because we have two friends that have been jailed in Canada for speaking out against homosexuality and Islam. That mm-hmm. is censorship, and they're trying to censor the pastors in our country. Uh, where is the First Amendment rights, I wonder, with well, regard to that? I, I think that they have been abridged. I think they've been... Uh, they've been overcome by this uh, by this legislation. I, I just again, I do not understand why the legislative branch, I mean the judicial branch, has not been uh, taken to task on this and, and forced to deal with this issue because I don't see how it could be constitutional. Well, if you're, uh, I guess the the liberals, at least up until recent years, have always applauded First Amendment rights. Perhaps when it was in their in their interest to sell their program, but. I'm wondering how that doesn't apply to views that are different than theirs. Even the First Amendment is a First Amendment. Well, that was before people like you got on the radio and the airways and, and, and started countering their uh, uh, propaganda. And yeah. You and, and a bunch like you, mm-hmm. I mean, you're the target of the fairness doctrine. Uh, they want to shut you down. They don't want to increase liberal radio. Nobody listens to it. In fact, they're, they're going out of you know, business and off the air routinely. But they need to shut you down because you are presenting uh, you're presenting factual information that runs counter to the propaganda that they have tried to uh, spew uh, across our nation. So uh, it, it, it has 
certainly changed their attitude about the First Amendment. Well, talk to me a little bit more about this fairness doctrine, since uh, people like me are being targeted. I'm, I'm interested in it. Uh, Chuck Schumer is a champion of, and they call it the fairness doctrine. How is it the fairness doctrine if it doesn't give equal rights uh, to express views and opinions? Well, let's go back to the fair market. You know, I mean, it's a, a matter of supply and demand. Who wants to mm -hmm. listen to liberal radio? Mm -hmm. Not very Nobody does these days. It, it, because they're not doing it. So the fairness doctrine says if you have an hour of conservative radio, then you have to have an hour of liberal radio. That's what right. it's targeted towards. Yeah. And they want to shut you and, and uh, Rush Limbaugh and uh, Glenn Beck and uh, Sean Hannity and all of mm -hmm. you conservatives that are out there speaking truth mm -hmm. and uh, pointing out uh, the hidden agenda and the lies associated with uh, what uh, the public is being told in the mainstream media, they want to shut you down. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it certainly is, uh, is, is very disconcerting, to say the least. Uh, a couple of more issues here before we go to break. Uh, a couple of more characterizations, I should say, of, of Marxist uh, movements. Gun ownership has to be controlled. Uh, we have a second, men, a second Amendment in the, in the United States, but talk to us about how is that going in the U.S.? We still have the right to bear arms, although it is pretty uh, pretty regulated. I mean, and I don't happen to own a firearm. I don't. I just never have. I live in New York City. I don't know. It would it would be very very difficult to get the right to do it here, I suppose. But talk to us about what's happening in, in with gun ownership in the U.S. before we go to break, and then we'll come back. Yeah. Well, the thing that we need to watch closely, and I've talked to the NRA about it, is the. United Nations Small Arms Treaty, which the president has indicated that he would sign, uh, and the secretary has reinforced that, Secretary Clinton, uh, which would ultimately mean that an international body would determine how we as American citizens uh, buy, sell, and control our arms. And by the way, do not listen to those who say, no, it will only apply to military arms. Uh, that's not the case. It will apply to our private weapons. And uh, the good news is, since November 2nd, it's unlikely that the Senate will ratify that. But the, the effort to make that happen is still part of this whole Marxist model. Okay, so we've had an election, and we move back to the center. That is the new center, which keeps shifting to the left. And we have now uh, probably not to worry as much about that issue right now, but it's on the long-term agenda, right? Yes, absolutely. I think it's something we have to keep watching and uh to their credit, the NRA is doing a very good job of keeping people informed on this issue. Uh, there is one more major point that you point out, and we I see uh, my engineer is telling me we're going to go to break very soon, but let me just mention it, and then when we come back on the other side of the, of, the, uh, of the commercial break, we can talk about it. You're talking about a constabulary force, that is, a force that is, I guess, centrally controlled by the president. Uh, to keep, like, I guess, to spy on each other, a national police state to watch each other and make sure that we behave in the way that the dictator wants us to behave? Is that, is that what you're talking about, constabulary force? Every Marxist society has had a constabulary force to uh, control the people, to watch the people, and provide intelligence to the leadership of that Marxist government. Okay, we're going to go to break now, and uh, as soon as we come back, we want to expand on that. And I've got a ton more questions to ask. Lieutenant General Boykin. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back on the other side of the commercial break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for the second hour. Uh, They are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, 
Coral Gold, North Atlantic Resources, Adventure Gold, Brigus Gold Corp., Gold Bullion Development, Golden Minerals, and Matinor Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have Lieutenant General Boykin back with us again. He has a few more minutes to spend with us, and I'm so grateful that he has come back. It's a very stimulating discussion we've had, but I want to pick up where we left off right before the break, and that has to do with the, cons uh, the constabulary force. Uh, Lieutenant General, talk to us about that. What do you mean by a constabulary force, and is it taking place in the U.S.? Well, a constabulary force has traditionally been a, uh, a police and intelligence-like unit that uh, uh, helps the administration to control the population by uh, spying on them, providing information to the leadership, and, uh, and then as, uh, as directed to actually control the people uh, in the society. Now, Hitler had that in the brown shirts. Our president, our current president, said before the election, and it is on YouTube, and, and anybody that wants to can find it. He said, if I'm elected president, I will have a national civilian security force that is large as and as well-equipped as the U.S. military. Now, you have to ask why. For what? We have all we need. And, uh, and now, in the health care legislation, uh, there is a verbiage in there uh, which talks about the commissioning of officers in time of emergency to work directly for the president uh, outside of the military, outside of you know the uh, other federal agencies, and uh, that, uh, in my view, is uh, the groundwork for what I have described as the constabulary force. So, in other words, if people are not uh, are not obeying the dictatorial commands from Washington, then We'll have neighbors that will be spying on us and turning us in, or what? Well, that's what happens in Marxist societies. And uh, close to home is Castro. Uh, you can look at Hugo Chavez, and then you can certainly look at the historic models of Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong. They all mm -hmm. had it. There's a much very basic difference, though, between, say, a, a fascist dictatorship and a communist dictatorship, is there? I mean, you take a Hitler or a... Uh, maybe a, a milder version, a, a Mussolini or somebody like our Franco, uh, you basically have the same thing, don't you? Is there really a difference between fascism and communism? Not much, is there? Well, no, I think, uh, you know, fascism probably in most uh, cases uh, resulted in sort of a dictator, uh, almost like a royal family. And uh, mm -hmm. But having said that, I don't think the fascism has as complex of a uh, social model. Uh, you know, you had a, a very wealthy elite, and then you had nothing but peasants. And of course, in the Marxist model, you uh, you destroy the middle class and try to uh, bring the uh, lower economic classes up. So there, I think mm -hmm. there is some difference. Yeah. Okay. Well, then maybe there's a little more room for some free market activity around the edges in a fascist society. And uh, some would argue that we're heading in that direction more than in a communist society. All I know is it seems like our liberties are being taken away from us in a fairly regular, uh, albeit slow, but regular basis. So the question then, uh, Lieutenant General, is what can we as Americans do? What can we do to stop this this march towards um, loss of our freedoms, really. And I forget materialism. I, Congressman Paul, who's a good friend of mine, he's been on this show a couple of times, he, he likes to say if we have our freedom, we can regain our prosperity. But if we lose our freedom, then it's all over. It's lights out. So what can we do? Well, the reason we've been in 
a, uh, a superpower uh, economically as well as militarily is because of our freedom. We've had the freedom to choose, the free market. Uh, what can we do? Get involved. You can't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get involved. Uh, you can get involved in any number of organizations in this country. Uh, and, and certainly I'm an advocate of the Tea Parties. I've never been to one. I know lots of people who have, uh, and I, I haven't participated because I'm doing other things. But you can get involved in something that really understands sort of the grassroots issues and is willing to make a statement on these. The other thing is we need to wear our members of Congress out. Uh, we need to call them. We need to email them. We need to go visit their offices. We need to go to their town hall meetings. And we need to be not afraid that someone will criticize for being a right-wing extremist. We need to state our views because when you do, you're going to find out there's a heck of a lot of people that support you. A mm -hmm. lot of people that think the same way you do, but they've been sitting on the sidelines. And, uh, and then we've got to get in behind candidates that do truly represent our values. You know, I'm down in Florida right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, Florida just elected that guy named Alan West. Uh, and he's a, a Jay Christie, I mean, a... Uh, Chris Christie uh, clone almost because he speaks mm -hmm. the truth and people have gravitated to him in large numbers. He pulls no punches. He's not politically correct. And we need to find more candidates like that and get in behind them and push them and uh, help fund their campaigns and, and uh, get the right people uh, in our Congress. And uh, But the, the key is that we have got to let these members of Congress know uh, what our expectations of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to this notion of the Federal Reserve playing a key role in this whole evolution towards Marxism, uh, I look at um, I, I, just a little background here. I got I became interested in gold uh, back in in the late '60s when I was, had a history professor that was convinced there was a correlation between the debasing of currencies and uh, the morality of a nation and the work ethic of a nation. And I thought that was a very interesting idea. And I watched what was going on in the late '60s with the Vietnam War. Uh, with with neither President Johnson or President Nixon wanting to tell us that we had to pay for that or for the great society. It was something that we were going to have, we just have, and we wouldn't have to worry about paying for it. Of course, we did pay for it. We printed money, uh, and we had a lot of inflation in the 70s. So people paid for it, but they weren't aware of what they were paying for. Um, do, do you? It seems to me, and I just want to throw this idea out here and get your response to it. It seems to me that we really went off the track to a great extent when we went off the gold standard in 1971, when Richard Nixon closed the gold one. And I'm not blaming him for it. I mean, I think it was probably you know the forces of of, of time and everything were were uh, demanding that of him. But if you look at it, after 1971, when there was no longer any control on the issuance of money by the Federal Reserve banking system the cartel, as you point out, it is. Then we started to see credit cards taking off. We started seeing people believing they could have something without working for it, without saving. Do you think, um, do you think there's some connection there between uh, the, the easy money and the socialization of risk that the Federal Reserve is doing and, and this sort of immorality that we see? Because how can you see anything but immorality in what Wall Street has done recently, the way they've yeah, and, and the whole act of just making people pay for the mistakes of Wall Street uh, seems immoral to me. But I just like your comments, if you want to just generally comment on that thesis, that there's some connection between the debasing of currency and the direction a nation takes. Well, I think you're right, and uh, I think you're giving uh, Wall Street too much credit. I don't think it's mistakes. I think it's greed. 
Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of that on Wall Street, and uh, you know Bernie Madoff is you know obviously the epitome of that. But there's been a lot of that. But I do think the basing of our currency has been devastating. Um, you know the dollar is still you know the the world currency, and uh, but it's becoming uh, you know less and less valuable every single day. And when we went off the gold standard, you know it uh, it it really meant that our uh, monetary system could be manipulated by these cartel type organizations mm-hmm. uh, in a way that uh, we can't stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that, that that sort of manipulation allowed Wall Street to reallocate wealth from the people that created it, the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, people, the average middle class Americans that actually do things that are valuable to people. And I see it as an ex-banker. I must confess that I am an ex-banker as a lending officer, credit officer, credit lender, a credit uh, analyst and lending officer. And I could see how uh, the system works and how we really how Wall Street reallocates wealth. Uh, I want to ask you just a, about a couple of your other books that you uh, that we talked about just in in your introduction. Never surrender: uh, A soldier's journey to the crossroads of faith and freedom. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what that's about? We just have a couple of minutes left, but if you could just give a brief synopsis of that. Yeah, it's an autobiography of my time in the Delta Force and uh, the Green Berets and Special Operations, and how my faith uh, played a key role in not only helping me to. Uh, succeed, but also to survive. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I talked about a couple of times I was severely wounded and uh, was in, uh, unquestionably miraculously healed. Mm. Uh, so it's really an autobiography about my years in the Delta Force. Sounds like a very interesting read. I'm going to have to pick up a copy. What about another one, Danger Close? What is that about? Danger, yeah, Danger Close is uh, a fiction, but it's based on real characters, and it's about a uh, planned Al-Qaeda a uh, weapon of mass destruction attack against Washington, and the uh, uh, a young man that uh, goes underground uh, penetrates Al Qaeda to try and stop it, and it really focuses on the tremendous uh, price that uh, some great Americans are paying every day in the espionage world to uh, protect our nation. And I did a tour at CIA as well as special operations, so I, I wrote about some real characters. Well, that's really fascinating. And people can pick up these books at KingdomWarriors.net, I guess at Amazon and elsewhere, is right? Any? Yep, Amazon, right. KingdomWarriors.net, um, any of the major bookstores. Well, I really, uh, really, really enjoyed uh, this discussion, Lieutenant General Boykin. I, I thank you very much. Uh, I see we have just maybe a few more seconds. just like to ask you, I have in front of me in my office uh, a, a photograph of George Washington. It's actually a replica of a painting. And inscribed on, the, uh, on this painting, uh, on this picture, it says, it is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. I'm assuming you would uh, tend to agree with that. Well, of course I would, and I think that you'll find that the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were all uh, men of faith. Uh, they had mm-hmm. differing views and differing theologies, but they were men of faith, and they intended this nation to, uh, to maintain a focus on the... Uh, sovereignty of God. Well, we have to try to see if we can get back to that. I think uh, these were men of faith that that agreed for differences, and they didn't want to impose or uh, try to force people into their view of God, but basically to have the freedom and the liberty for people to worship God, or not to, as they chose. So uh, thank you very much, Lieutenant General uh, Boykin, for being with us. Uh, You've uh, provided some real eye-opening ideas for our people to to listen to, to think about, and to act on. Thank you very much. Don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back 
Uh, we're going to be right back with Danny Cofty. He's going to tell us how we can live on the meager salaries we're going to have to live on if General Boykin is right as we move towards socialism. How to live on a teacher's salary. Don't go away. We're going to hear from, uh, from Danny Kofke. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Danny Kofke. He's a special education teacher, and he's the author of the practical and easy-to-understand book, uh, called How to Survive and Perhaps Thrive on a Teacher's Salary. Danny Kofke shares his secrets uh, for thriving financially on a teacher's salary. Uh, I think most teachers uh, probably uh, are middle-income people at best, and 
so he, he has some ideas for us to help us understand, not only teachers, but anybody, uh, and maybe even some good ideas for people that might have more money. Maybe, maybe we're being very wasteful at times. Maybe we're, maybe we're spending beyond, uh, maybe we're spending things we don't need to spend for. Maybe we might do well to, uh, to, to tuck some more money away or to look at our neighbors who might be in need or our family members who might be in need. Uh, in any event, uh, I want to thank you, Danny, for joining me uh, on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hey, Jay, thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's really good to have you. You are a teacher of special education. You're talking about kids with special needs. Talk to us a little bit about the students that you have in your class. Yeah, I teach what is known here in Georgia as a severe, profound uh, classroom. It's a self-contained, so they're all in one room. And my students, uh, most of them have IQs under 30, so really no communication, um, no talking. They can use, some of them can use communication boards, but very minimally. Um, some, there was feeding tubes, changing of diapers. So, you know, just pretty, pretty low, but also at the same token, very, very rewarding for me because it lets me see on a daily basis the joy that they get out of life. Um, mm. I, I, we tend to overlook so many things that we do have, and we're always, as a culture, always looking to accumulate more and get bigger and better, whereas I kind of get to step back every single day, and I, they get joys out of eating marshmallows from Lucky Charms or just <laughs> listening to a particular song. So it's so cool that I'm able to see that, and it helps remind me that, you know what, I really do have a good, even though I don't make a large salary, I have two beautiful daughters at home. I have a loving wife. I have a roof over my head, clothes. I have everything that I really need, and they kind of show me that I can get some appreciation out of the little things, too. So there's a lot of times I feel that, feel that uh, they teach me more than I teach them. Wow. Um, that, that is, um, uh, that, that's amazing. I, I think that you make a very good point. We forget the very basic things in life that we have to be thankful for. And, uh, excuse me, Th thank you, Danny. Um, anyway, I just, just want to compose myself because you just, uh, you just caught me in, the, uh, in a moment of weakness, I guess. I, I was just oh, sort I'm of sorry. choked up. No, I mean, it's just, but it's so cool when that, I'm able to I do that because I just we felt do. Very, um, I, I just, it just hit home and, and realizing that the selfishness that we, uh, that we engage ourselves in at times. Anyway. I want to ask you then, um, so you're in Georgia, and I think that the teachers' salaries probably don't quite match up with what our teachers in a strong teachers' union in New York City get. What, no. what sort of uh, salaries, what, what would be the salary range for teachers, let's say beginning teachers that just out of college to those that might have been around for, for a couple, three, four decades? Um, you know, at the beginning, I'm actually not sure what a first-year teacher, I'm thinking it's around thirty-four, thirty-five thousand a year. I'll tell you, this is my 11th year teaching, and I just made a little bit above 41000 if that's what my salary was this mm -hmm. year. So uh, we've been hit here like everywhere else. We've been hit with some furlough days and a lot of budget cuts and everything. But uh, that's where I try to, you know, most people, when they say, gosh, it'd be nice to make a teacher's salary, and I know a lot of people are hurting right now, and they would like to make, you know, anything, but at 11 years at a job and making 41 grand, not complaining, but it's definitely a moderate level income. So that, that's kind of roughly around the income in this area. All right. Well, I'm, I'm reading that 50% uh, of the teachers, uh, I guess this would be nationwide, leave the profession within five years, mm -hmm. uh, despite the fact that they, teachers in general, find their jobs to be gratifying. As you mentioned, your job is very gratifying. Why are people leaving? Is it just is it economics? People are finding it very difficult to 
make ends meet uh, on a teacher's salary, maybe to raise a family on a teacher's sal- salary. I mean, you mentioned you have two daughters and mm-hmm. you have a wife. Um, what, what, so why are people leaving if it's such a gratifying job? Yeah, there was, there was a study done by the National Education Association and it did show that 50% quit within the first five years, and that was partially due to low pay. But the other part was poor working conditions, and I think both of them together. Let's face it, you get out of college – starting off. And right now, that study was done a few years ago. So that might have changed right now because of the recession. I don't think many people are leaving jobs unless they have something else lined up. But, um, but I think this is what happens. You get into teaching and the first couple of years, I mean, they are so difficult because let's say you have 25 kids in your class, you pretty much have 25 bosses, the kids' parents. So a lot of people don't realize that the stress that goes involved and you're dealing with all sorts of issues. So then you top that off and you're making, say, starting off making, depending on where you are, but we'll just say you start off making $35,000 a year. Well, then here's your buddy who graduated with you, goes into the private sector. He's starting off immediately making $60,000, $70,000 a year, maybe double your salary. Then you just start thinking, gosh, I'm doing this. There's a, little, there's a lack of appreciation. Uh, it's such a stressful job. And I could get out of this. I could go do something else and double or triple my salary. And I think that's what happens. A lot of people just take that leap to go ahead and do that. Okay, so then maybe they're not picking up the gratification aspect of the of the job and looking at it, in, you know, as you're able to to look and and realize these uh, these very uh, these kids that have that are severely handicapped, uh, right. having to see the joy in their eyes, the the happiness for the most meager sort of basic things in life, and. Uh, I guess if you can't get that feedback or if you don't see that, then maybe you're tempted to go to something like I've done all my life in banking or something. Right. Well, I'll tell you what. I, unfortunately for me, which now it's fortunate, but I was one of those numbers. I never mm-hmm. thought I would be. But the chance that we had one daughter, my wife is a stay-at-home mom. So after uh-huh. Ava was born, I had the chance to double and triple my teaching salary, and I took it. I said, I have to try this for my family and it was mm-hmm. selling high-end flooring. At that time, I was teaching first grade, and for your listeners that don't know, first grade's a very difficult grade to teach, <laughs> but it's also very rewarding. You have kids that come in at the beginning of the year that don't know how to write their name. Nine months later, they're reading chapter books, so very rewarding. So I went from doing that to selling high-end flooring. Nothing against flooring salesmen. If that's your passion, have at it. Mm-hmm. But coming from teaching, I didn't really care if someone bought a $5,000 area rug. I was not a very good salesman for that. So uh-huh. I was able to see, you know what? Teaching means this much to me. And my wife even said, I see that you've lost your spark even at home. And we sat down one night and we talked. I said, I don't care if I make a million dollars a year selling flooring. I'm much more happier. It's what's best for my life teaching in the classroom, making 35 at that time, 35 grand a year. So made the switch, went back into teaching and, you know, have, haven't looked back since. But I think because I was able to step out of it for a minute, it's almost like once you lose something, you, uh, you kind of see the bright side of it and you, you see what you're missing. So mm-hmm. I was able to see that. So, and we never got used to making more money. So I was able to kind of make that transaction transition again and go back into making, you know, what I'm making now. And then learning to live within your means. So let's talk about that. We only have about four minutes left, Danny. Okay. Uh, let, let's talk about how can people let, let get some practical tips. Uh, um, you, you mentioned uh, retiring, you t- the possibility of retiring with a reasonably good sized nest egg. Well, right. is it just a matter of not living beyond your means? Is it a matter of realizing what you have, not going into debt? How do you do it? True. Well, what we've done, first off, I mean, you think most of us, we're the wealthiest country on earth or one of the wealthiest, but yet there's so many unhappy people. And I think we go back to getting that happiness from either your job, your spiritually, emotionally, your spouse, whatever. So I think a lot of people spend money, even though they don't have it, to fulfill some void in their life or 
and what we've done, and this helps us so much, we wrote down everything we spent for one month. And this is at the beginning of our marriage, and we tracked it. Then at the end of the month, we were able to analyze it, sit down. It's our handwriting, black and white, and we got to see where our money was going. Because most of us have areas that we overspend in, and we don't realize it. And for teachers and other, area, other expertise, other people in professions that don't make a large salary, those little things can add up. Eat lunch out, $5 a day. Probably not going to miss $5, not think twice during the work week. Well, that's $25 a week, $100 a month, $1,200 a year. That's a lot of money on a teacher's salary. So mm-hmm. we were able to see exactly how our money was being spent and then see where we could cut back a little bit. But I think for a lot of people, once again, it goes back to the emotional aspect of it. Most people can do the math when they use credit cards. You know, if you say you put $100 on a credit card, 24% APR, if you don't make a payment all year, you're going to owe $124. The mm-hmm. math isn't difficult, but yet the emotions is where the, we play the part where a lot of people, they don't feel satisfied in certain areas. So they tend to spend and buy something, and it feels good when they buy it, absolutely, but then it fades, it goes away, and then they're stuck in this cycle where they have to buy things to give them that false sense of happiness. Yeah, and the more they dig themselves into debt, the more that income is is uh, is, is slipping away to the bankers and away from themselves. Right. You talk about a little bit about teaching in a foreign country. Is that Talk to us about that. Yeah, my wife, before she was stay-at-home mom, she was a teacher too. And our first two years of marriage, we actually taught at an American international school in Krakow, Poland. It was the best experience. I mean, first off, for a marriage, first two years, we we don't speak Polish, you know, learned a little bit over there. But uh, we were in the middle of the city, so we just had to communicate with each other, rely on each other. We were able to travel to 10 countries. We honeymooned in Venice. We were able to save money, which is a pretty good way to save money. But the most important lesson that we've learned that we even still keep with us today is we were able to see a different way of living. At that time, this was the year 2000, so Poland was about 10, 11 years removed from communist rule. Very, very poor country. We live, like I said, in an apartment in the middle of the city, small one-bedroom apartment, just the two of us. And it was pretty small for us, you know, being used to being what we lived in in America. But we saw families that had three kids living in the same size apartment, and they were happier than the same people we knew back at home that had 3,000-square-foot homes. And yeah. it just kind of made us think a little differently. And I think America is the greatest country on earth. I think we are the hardest-working country. But I also think there are a lot of times that we're on this cycle of we always want to accumulate more, more, more. And like I mentioned at the beginning, we never really sit back and think about what we do have. And I'm all for working hard. I think hard work is great. But I also think there's a time you have to realize why you're working hard. And if Mm -hmm. it's always constantly to accumulate more, then to me, you're never going to be fulfilled because there's always more to be had. You'll miss the happiness in life uh, that you're talking about. Talk to us just briefly, and we all, I'm, I'm squeezing out and trying to get another minute or so for my engineer, but uh, investing in IRAs, you say Roth IRAs. Why Roth IRAs? I like the Roth because of the taxes. Uh, you know, you pay the taxes right now up front when you're ready to retire and pull it out. The money, the interest that you've earned, the growth that you earn, you can pull it out. You're not paying any taxes on that. And let's face it, the way the country's going right now, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I'm going to think that taxes are going to probably go up. I'm just, we're in such a, a huge amount of debt right now that to me, if we can pay the tax rate right now, and that way all the earnings grow tax-free, and then when I get to be 60 years old, can pull that money out and I don't have to pay any taxes on it, I'm kind of liking that. Well, you're kind of young yet, I think, Danny, so you've got a long time to make those uh, earnings grow. I I think uh, I am already at that 60 age level, so, um, you know, for me, I don't know about a, a Roth IRA, but, uh, right. uh, but honestly, I think you have a lot of great ideas here. 
uh, I think you're, one of them is make a weekly budget or a monthly budget or some sort of a budget so you really have a sense of what you're spending. I think most Americans don't do that. Uh, we've, we've had it so easy, we haven't had to, but uh, your experience in Poland probably taught you that you got to be very careful about how you speak, uh, how you how you spend your money. So, really want to thank you, Danny, for coming on. Uh, let us know. So, your book can be purchased where? Um, probably the easiest way, if you just Google search my name, D A N N Y K O F as in Frank K E. The first thing that comes up is my blog page. So, a direct link to order my book there to email me, or it's available Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and a few other places too. Very good, Danny. Well, thank you very much for your inspirational message. I uh, thank you very much. You, I think you've, uh, you, you'll mean more than you know to our listeners. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you so much for having me on, Jay. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you, Danny. Well, don't go away, folks. I'm going to be right back with Chris Krupe. He's the president of Paramount Gold and Silver, a very interesting company, one that I think has uh, got a great deal of promise exploring and developing for gold and silver in Mexico and in Nevada. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Krupe. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Goldfields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love there. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have with me once again Chris Krupe of Paramount Gold and Silver. Paramount Gold and Silver is a recommendation of my newsletter, and it is also a client of Jay's watch list. Uh, it is traded on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol PZG, uh, I guess the same symbol in the U.S., uh, 110.4 million shares out, the last I looked anyway, and the stock is around, it was as high as 290 or 292 today, I think it's settled back into the 280s. Everybody gives it a market cap of over $300 million, so this is uh, not a, a small market cap compared to many of the companies we look at, but I think in terms of what the potential is, it might still be quite small, although... It has risen very dramatically in the last couple of years. But anyway, I want to welcome Chris uh, back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Welcome. Thank you, Jay. Nice to be here again. Well, really good to have you. Now, I did take a look at your chart before we went on the air, and I was astounded to see that it has risen very dramatically from about $1.70 or so a couple of days back to 315. It hit 315. I mentioned it's down around 280 or so now. What on earth is going on? Well, you know, Jay, we've been drilling very uh, consistently and regularly in Mexico since the end of 2008 when Albert Friedberg at Toronto made that investment when nobody would put money in the markets. We took his $9 million, we've drilled, and we've drilled, and finally we hit a target which has got a lot of excitement. Um, it's right up on the, one of the edges of our, of our concession boundaries with, with Coeur d'Alene Mines, that, that, that company that trades out of Idaho, the old silver miner. And they have the Palmerejo mine right next to us. So we've, 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 we've put six really nice holes into this structure that runs right off their property and onto ours. And the grades are wonderful, gold, silver grades, nice thick vein. And it's got some length. It's got some potential. So, we, you know, we've, while we've been building this thing, this really caused a lot of excitement because of the, the, the potential of this one structure and the, the grades of it are, are fairly high. You know, relatively speaking. So, is it the uh, geological uh, interpretation that this is a continuation of their of their uh, mineralization? Absolutely, it it runs right off of their property, their concession boundary onto ours, and um, you know, it's it's um, it's one of those things that you know, it's probably the best thing we've hit in five years that I've been down there with this company. And um, there's been a lot of people waiting for us to do this. I've been telling people there's a lot of potential down there. And, you know, we, we've, we've had some great, great results over the last five years. But this thing kind of, you know, really sparked some interest. And it really brought in the investment community that I've been preaching to. And, you know, we have 13,000 shareholders. Uh, and so they've all been watching very closely for this opportunity to participate and we will come back to this in the new year. So now uh, the people you were preaching to suddenly started to hear your message, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can, you can tell people the story and, and, and then you have to come back and you have to show them that you're, you're, you're right, 
that you're doing things correctly, you're investing money wisely, and then the results happen, and then, you know, we get some following, and then it just builds over time. So this is kind of the, the culmination of that. And we, we, from a technical perspective, you said you talked about the charts, we've now passed through some major resistance points, and that has helped us really to, um, to get some, some value. I mean, now we're trading, we're still sub, if you can imagine, as a company, we have 4.7 million ounces in the ground between the two properties, and we're still trading less than $100 an ounce. And I think that, that companies like ours are going to really blow through that 100 There was seemed to be some kind of ceiling. We're getting close, and we'll get there, I think, in the new year. Uh, tell us what that resistance level is that you've broken through. Well, there was, a, there was a key resistance level, sort of $190 to $2. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, um, for whatever reason, you know, legacy reasons. And, and once we cracked that point, as you rightly said, we went very quickly to $3. And there's still, from the charts, tell us there is no more resistance. So as, as long as we keep doing what we say we, we're going to do, I think we'll keep getting that value, and I go back to the ounces in the ground on a per ounce basis in, in situ, which is, I think, a key metric for an exploration company. You can't use the revenue metric because no. we don't have revenues yet, right? So we're right, going right. there. Right. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, tell our listeners, uh, what sort of grades do they have next door? How much – is it a gold and silver deposit, obviously, that Cordell Lane has next door? And yeah. uh, you, you talk to us a little bit about that. What sort of grades, average yeah. grades, do they have over there? Well, in 2007, Core uh, bought the Palmerejo deposit and has now built the mine. They paid a billion one for the claims. They put 400 million into building the mill. There's a there's, you know, two 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 million to three million ounces of gold, but it's gold. It's a gold and silver mine, and the grades are you know in the sort of three to five grams per ton of gold. If you want to talk about grams per ton, this particular vein you're talking about 20 grams per ton. So you're talking about a multiple of what their average grade is. And the reason why that's important, as you can imagine, is because in this market, at $1,400 gold, 20 gram per ton mm. uh, mineralization is um, very economic, extremely oh. economic. Um, okay. You can't really control the cost so much, but, you, you, but, um, but the, the, price, the, the, the price of the commodity is going to drive the value of the thing. Okay, Chris, but let me ask you, you put six drill holes down now. Is that sort of the yeah. average uh, gold value you're getting? And if that's true, how much silver? Or is that a, is that a gold equivalent grade? Yeah, it's a gold equivalent because okay. you know, people used to discount the value of silver, but now that it's pushing $30, um, you know, 200 grams per ton of silver adds four grams per ton of gold if you divide it wow. by, by 50, if, if that's the ratio, 50 to 1. So, so you're taking, you know, 15... 16 gram per ton gold and adding that. So I'm, I'm throwing out general numbers. At the end of the day, um, when, we, when we size this whole thing up in a resource estimate next year, which is what we're, we're shooting for end of March next year, we'll have the average grades, we'll have the grades by the specific area, and people can evaluate at that time as well. Okay, so can you give us some sense of the strike length? Do you have, a, do you, do you have some geophysics or something to go by in terms of what the potential might be here? Yeah, so we've, we've put six holes. We've got a seventh hole in the lab pending assay. Hopefully we can put that out soon. That particular part of the structure runs about half a kilometer, 550 meters, and there's another 200 meters to drill. So we're talking 700 meters. There's another southeastern part of it, which we haven't talked about yet, which is about double the length. And we're going to put 
we're going to get back into there in January, and we're going to start drilling the southern southeast extension of it, which could be, you know, two times as long, maybe even longer. And we we we've done a lot of work over the years to identify these structures. Um, they're regional structures. They run throughout the district. That's why we got in here. That's why we have 450,000 acres in one project. And we've spent a lot of time understanding where these structures run, and they're very long. So when we get into the second part of it, I think it's going to get equally exciting, and we've got a, about a 20-hole drill program planned for that. Does this have, uh, first of uh, how close to the surface is this mineralization? Um, it's, um, it's, it's not close enough from my okay. initial view, to be an open pit mine. So you're talking about you know, several hundred meters of depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're talking about an underground mining situation, but the grades mm-hmm. are high enough oh, yeah. to, uh, to, to call for that. Yeah. I, would, I would guess so. And does yeah. it have, so it's a vein, what is the, the vertical extent of the vein? Um, the, the, the vein? The vein's looking like it's about a 19 meter you know, or 60 feet of mm-hmm. width, mm-hmm. and you know, we're hitting it anywhere it's moving, right? So we're hitting it anywhere from a few hundred meters down to, we've, we've even now started drilling it at depth. We, we're now starting to drill, just so you know, at seven, 800 meters to see how far down we can chase this vein. So we don't know the extent okay. uh, down dip, and, and that's, that's exciting us because, you know, the deeper we can go with mineralized rock, the more, again, economic it will become. And we'll, only time will tell as we drill this thing out at depth. Well, this is very exciting. This is in, in Mexico. This is, your, I guess, your most exciting thing you have going on in Mexico now. But you also have uh, the sleeper mine that you acquired in Nevada. And that is of great interest to me because, as I mentioned before uh, to you, that I was a banker with Westpac Banking Corp. When, uh, when, when Westpac was a participant in lending to AMAX a uh, 250,000-ounce gold loan for the sleeper, I was there on that property. I saw the enormously rich gold vein that they had there. Talk to us just a little bit in the next couple of minutes because that's about all the time we have. If you can just yeah. tell our listeners a little bit about the potential of the sleeper mine. I, I believe there was a lot of exploration potential there for years but with low gold prices, it didn't go anywhere. Talk to us about that. If yeah, you so uh, in 96, when it was closed, I think gold dropped below 300. It has sitting preserved for 14 years. There's now a block of 30 square miles, seven miles by four miles, right off the highway. The facilities are there. The buildings are there. The pumping equipment is there. The, the, the power is there. We are drilling that property. We started drilling in October. We've got an initial program. The assays are starting, no, sorry, the core is starting to roll into the lab. In the new year, we'll have the assays back. We think that we're going to turn the 1.1 million ounces that's still left in the ground there under Canadian 43101 standard, measured indicated, into a 2 million ounce deposit in no time. And I don't think it's going to take a lot of time and effort. There's 4,000 drill holes in the database left over, 380,000 blast holes. There's an incredible amount of information. It's a dream to walk into an exploration property like this. We will continue drilling till we make this asset big enough that we can do a full feasibility and build a mine there. On the other side, we've got 700,000 ounces sitting in the tailings pond and the heap stacks that we're in the middle of uh, completing metallurgical testing to see what we can recover. If we can get even half of that 700,000 ounces out of that, we'll reinvest the cash from the above-ground piles and stacks, the 50 million tons, back in the exploration. So we're extremely excited about this. And Nevada is the single best place to mine in the world. I don't care what anybody says. It's got all the people, the resources, and the big mining companies are there with all of their facilities, very close by. 
So it's a wonderful, we're extremely bullish and excited. And once the assays start coming out, I think your listeners will be quite, quite happy. Very interesting. It really is a very interesting story. Listeners and my subscribers and me personally, I might add, let me ask you, we do have to go now, but let me just ask you, is there anything else you think our listeners should absolutely be aware of right now before we say goodbye for this time? Well, I think that we're, we're, we're cashed up. We've got $18 million in cash. We've got a great backer in Albert Friedberg who backed Arizona Star and has backed Seabridge Gold. I'm not really concerned about that from a financial perspective. Our stock's trading wonderful volumes. Um, I think just leverage to gold is the story here. Uh, we're focused on gold and silver in the Americas, and, and keep your eyes tuned on, on the new developments as um, indexes and, and mutual funds and ETFs start picking up stocks like Paramount. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much, Chris. We'll have to have you on again. This is a very, very interesting story. Thanks again. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the break with Roger Regan. We're going to break. Out. We're going to uh, talk about. We're going to uh, just wrap up today's today's uh, show with Roger. So I'll be right back uh, again. Thanks, Chris, for being with us. And uh, folks, we'll be right back with Roger Wiegand and myself on today's wrap up. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here with my partner and friend, Roger Wiegand, uh, for the wrap-up today. Uh, Roger, your your thoughts on the market. You're not all that bullish on the big market, the general market. I think you're probably quite bullish on gold shares. Correct me if I'm wrong. But what about the the, the basic market? You were saying before we came back on the air that you think uh, we could be 
we could be nearing a top here in the equity markets. Uh, talk well, to us about see, we got some double tops, and the prices went right on through them. That's indicative of, a, of an extended bull market. Um, there's been a little bit of weakening around these, around the edges on some of these tops, but uh, the volumes have not been good, which is what, you know, you could say, well, that's Christmas time. Also today, the volume was a little off because the Federal Reserve uh, uh, statement came out at 2.15 this afternoon. On a Federal Reserve day, uh, like today, the traders get nervous and they wait and watch to see what's going to happen, what's going to transpire. Uh, when the news did come out that there would be no change in any rates or anything, gold did do a pop. Uh, it went up five or ten bucks, but it came back again right away. Uh, the general trend on gold and silver is up. Uh, our, our mining shares are looking good. We recommended several a few days ago because we think that the general trend will be up through probably January 15 till the end of January. Uh, the one fly in the ointment, as I did mention a few minutes ago off the air, was if, in fact, these tax extensions are not passed as they were uh, discussed between the president and the GOP, uh, if, if, in fact, uh, uh, the House goes home and they don't vote this thing through, that puts the traders and the investors in a position where there is potential for higher taxes next year on stuff where they've got good gains this year. So some of them, in fact, if that occurred, could say, well, uh, I'll just take my money now and sit back and wait and see what's going to happen. Now, if that happens, our January 15 or our January 30 uh, peak in the stock market could come a whole month earlier, maybe right before Christmas or right after. Uh, mm -hmm. Chances of that happening, are, I think, are maybe 50-50 or maybe one out of three. Uh, we just don't know. It's just uh, the House is going to meet tonight, Tuesday night, and that should be quite interesting to say the least. Well, Roger, your uh, then then your outlook for stocks in 2011 not all that bullish, at least to start the year. No, I would say we've got to do a normal cycle correction in mid-January, end of January. But after that, uh, with the bond market in disarray and getting weaker, uh, and the yields going higher, the stage is set for some major inflation and also for uh, commodities to just really rocket. We're expecting gold and silver to set new records. In the first half of 2011, we're also looking for the same things coming in wheat, uh, sugar, and uh, cotton prices are just going way, way higher than expected. Palladium was up. Copper went to $4.40. It came back a little bit, <clears throat> but it still remains over $4. Mm -hmm. So commodities are up. It's inflation-driven, and it's on a weaker dollar. Well, you mentioned the uh, the bond markets. You do you you have been of the view for some time that we are near the peak in the long bond. I know that you and I have talked about this, but you know, uh, I looked at a chart, Roger, and we saw after quantitative easing was announced after Lehman Brothers, we saw the we saw the, the interest rates just drop, fall right off a table. And if you look at a long term chart of the twenty to thirty year bond market, you see we're still in a bull market. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many times I said to myself, this bull market in bonds has got to be over. Interest rates have got to take off. There's not enough savings. But yet, you know, I, I, I don't see it yet. Um, do you think we're anywhere near the top of this bond market, the 30-year well, treasury market? I think we are at the top of this thing. It, it, it turns on us again. Yeah. You know, our friend Jim Turk and I both tried to short it using the futures unsuccessfully, so we just quit doing that. 
Mm-hmm. And that was many months ago, if not a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, we did try TBT for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had a discussion with another trader today about the bond market, and I said with, with, with the manipulation coming from the Federal Reserve and the crazy stuff coming out of central banks around the world, I just think that the bond market is best left alone. I, even my broker told me that trying to short bonds or even uh, uh, trying to go long with bonds on the futures right now, uh, he said that the way the pits have been going lately, you can get run right through on your stops, and it's gotten pretty tricky and pretty dangerous. Uh, silver has always been a tough thing to trade, but bonds have trended that way with all this fiddling around and this manipulation. So my recommendation to the folks out there, the listeners, is leave the bonds alone. Uh, stay away from the ETF. Don't trade the futures. Uh, just use them as a signal for other markets and just stay out. I think it's a better thing to do. Okay, Roger. I think we're just about out of time. Uh, thank you for those views on the market. It is an exciting time, but I think a very dangerous time. We've had good profits this year. Uh, I'm telling my subscribers to be very cautious, put some money on the side, uh, take some short positions as well in the general market. I think I like gold stocks very much, and I know you do too, Raj, gold and silver stocks. Folks, uh, that's about all the time we have for this week. I want to thank uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Columbia, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Take advantage of our first-time, one-time-only trial subscriptions. Call uh, Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Next week, our special guest will be money manager Frank Holmes of the United States of the U.S. Global Group. Uh, Frank always has some very unique but very useful insights into the market. I don't think you're going to want to miss what Frank has to say, so be sure to tune in next week. Uh, Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.